Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I want to beg your indulgence for a longer-than-usual intro to today's conversation, but I promise it's really relevant. Way back in 2009, I started working on what proved to be an abortive book project. My wife gave me a full year to write a proposal and some chapters and, you know, to try to land a publisher, but I was distracted and disorganized and spent too much time on music stuff. And after my year was just about up in the spring of 2010, I shelved the idea and ended up starting this podcast, which is a good thing, and taking a job at Baidu just a month or so later, which was also a good thing. The topic, though, that I was working on is one that I have continued to think about quite a bit, and it's very much in line with what we're going to be talking about today. So all through the 2000s, internet users in China were practically you know, doubling every year. There were only a million or so of them in mid-1999. Uh, but by the time of the Beijing Olympics, there were over 200 million, still not a huge percentage of the Chinese population, not like it is today as the, you know, the mobile internet wasn't really a thing yet. But it was significant in many, many ways. Social media had already arrived. Chinese internet users thought of themselves already as Wangmin, as netizens. And they were referred to in, in Western writing on China as netizens all the time, which was, you know, a perfectly good translation of the word Wangmin and, and captured this sense that so many of them had of themselves as, as citizens of a new online polity. Importantly, prior to 2008, very little was actually blocked in China. You'd kind of be surprised. I mean, not the major international news sites or social media platforms or search engines, uh, just the usual suspects, as it were, you know, pornography sites and Falun Gong stuff, pro-Tibet or pro-Taiwan independence stuff. Xinjiang hadn't become the huge issue that it would, you know, later after 2009 and after, you know, the revelations of, of the internment camps. In the years leading up to the Olympics, a confluence of factors produced a phenomenon that none of us had really ever seen before. Ordinary Chinese people were connecting with Americans and others from the West for the first time at scale without intermediation, totally unsupervised. Uh, this was possible first because of the surge, of course, in, in Chinese internet users throughout the aughts. But they happened also to really be the first generation, these are post-80s kids mainly, who had, you know, taken compulsory English in school. And perhaps most importantly of all, they were profoundly curious about what people outside China were saying about China. They were, you know, conscious of their own rising stature. 
uh, heading into the big, you know, coming out party of the Olympics and aware that there was a whole lot of attention suddenly being paid to China. So they found themselves not only able to read what was being written about China by the outside world, uh, not really obviously very curious about it, but also able to respond to it. And you know how, how this goes, beginning especially with the troubles in Lhasa in, in March of 2008, the uprising, by some accounts, the riots in other accounts. Uh, we entered into a period of online vitriol that has continued to this day without much let up. So maybe the people who were once called Fenqing or angry youth are now called Xiaofenhong, little pinks. And uh, maybe the battlegrounds have changed from blogs and comment sections to Twitter but we are witnessing pretty much the same thing. The worsening online people-to-people relationship, moreover, seemed to parallel the worsening state-to-state relationship. The irony, even back then, was not lost on me. I mean, the whole internet thing, the promise of all this connectivity and the mutual understanding that it was supposed to usher in, well, it never quite panned out, did it? Not just between the U.S. and China, but, you know, between the right and left in the U.S., between the left and right in that funhouse mirror image of our politics that prevails in China, uh, we've all become more tribal, more fractured, more zealous. Uh, But for me, and and I think for much of this audience, it's the U.S.-China manifestation of this uh, that is, of course, particularly relevant. We now live in a world where the differences between our cultures, our values, our norms, our institutions— Those differences are shoved up in our face all the damn time. And in confronting this difference, our reaction has been, well, to become more confrontational. We live all jammed into this common present. I think it was Hannah Arendt that used that word first. And and we feel like our differences, and, and yeah, some of them are pretty profound, they have to be the thing that we're obliged to grapple with at every encounter. In the late aughts, as I was trying to write this book, we you know, stood touching digital noses with China and did not see eye to eye. That, by the way, is a reference to a lyric from a song in The Music Man. So uh, I'm trying to get tickets to see that on Broadway. If you have a hookup, you know, help a brother out. Anyway, it's this way, not just in our domestic politics and not just in our international relationships with other countries too, but it really feels especially pronounced when it comes to China. Uh, this is, you might say, a case of familiarity breeding contempt. And so as we have gotten more intertwined with China, weirdly, our contempt as a society seems to have grown. As our differences rise inevitably to the surface and become our obsessive focus, we all seem driven to just increasing stridency and and ultimately to what my guest today calls unpeace. We live, says Mark Leonard in his new book, in an age of unpeace, and that unpeace has been brought on as much as by anything else by our connectivity. Not just digital connectivity, but trade, mobility, physical commingling. The Age of Unpeace is a really thought-provoking book, and especially so for me because of the, the intellectual distance that the author seems to have traveled in coming to that conclusion, in, in locating the crux of the problem in connectivity itself. Mark Leonard is co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, the first pan-European think tank. He's someone who has spent a great deal of time in China and is the author of a book I really liked and which we interviewed him about ages ago back in a bygone age in Beijing called What Does China Think? And we'll talk a bit about that book in the coming hour. Meanwhile, Mark, it is so good to see you and welcome back at last to Seneca. It's been way too long. It's wonderful to be back with you again. It's only a shame that we're doing it virtually rather than in person. Well, I will see you on the mountain in like a, a week's time. So that, that'll be, it'll be good. We'll connect, get a drink. I look forward to it. So Mark, let's talk about this process by which you came to this you know, less sanguine view of things to the point that you decided to focus your book on the downside of connectivity, where you know, you'd always been something of a champion of, of you know, connection. Was there a mugged by reality moment for you or, or was it like a slow accretion of disappointments leading up to some kind of dark epiphany? Yeah, it was. There was a sort of slow accretion of doubts which started to emerge. And then I was mugged by reality in 2016. Um, and uh, <laughs> We all were. And my book, in a way, is a part of a process of therapy after 2016. But as you say, my life has been my personal life, my professional life, my intellectual life has been built on 
a rising tide of internationalism and international connections. And my kind of generation is the first generation in Europe to have not had to face the dangers of of war, enforced migration, even kind of extermination. My mum's family are German Jews. My dad was born in the in the 1930s. He was evacuated as a young boy during the Second World War. His father was fought in the in the First World War, and and their lives were very much marked by wars, hot and cold, and by the divisions between different countries. And my life, you know, my coming of age started with with the falling of the the Berlin Wall and the possibility of the world coming together in ways that were unthinkable during the Cold War. The same time that the Berlin Wall fell, the, the internet was being invented, the World Wide Web, and the, the digital connections have been a, a central part of, of my cultural intellectual development. And I lived in lots of different countries. I run a pan-European think tank. We have offices in lots of different countries across Europe. And I have benefited enormously from the ability to learn ideas, languages, other kinds of things from from all around the world and and was very much part of the the generation that hoped we were going to see global sense of destiny being built on the basis of of our global economy which um has become more and more integrated over time and that challenges such as climate change and other things which don't seem to respect um, national borders would lead us to to find ways of, of working together and to replace the the sort of history of of geopolitical competition and the balance of power with a, a different kind of international politics based on cooperation and and legal integration and what I have discovered over over the last 15 years or so is that many of the hopes that people had were were built on maybe less solid foundations than than we thought they had and so you had lots of things happening during the last couple of decades which started to raise big questions about it you know you had in the geopolitical space the after 9/11 the the invasion of Iraq and uh, there was a whole generation of people whose hope about democracy spreading around the world and um and of, of uh, moving towards a kind of period of a, a different kind of world order was um, somewhat disillusioned by the experience in Iraq and, and in Afghanistan then you had the global financial crisis which meant that the crisis of American foreign policy was then overlaid with the crisis of American capitalism. And that brought to the surface a lot of debates which had been less visible during the the 90s and the early noughties about the downside of globalization. It showed very clearly that there were losers as well as winners and the divisions in our societies and between different countries became much more evident. And then I think after that, you had a sort of security awakening and then a kind of economic one. And then the third kind of wave, I suppose, was more of a political awakening in different places, which seemed to be powered by the internet, where you saw people like Donald Trump and other political movements come to life that were not sort of classical political movements built on the the sort of class and other divisions which had structured our society and seemed to be based much more on identity, on grievances between different groups. And they were sort of leading a, a counter-revolution against internationalism, against connectivity, against globalization by the people who thought of themselves as the majority who were scared that they were being threatened by migration, by trade, uh, and were somehow being left behind. And for me, that you know, Trump was a was a massive shock. But a few months before Donald Trump was elected, we had the Brexit referendum in the UK, which was um, a real shock to my worldview, not just because I think it was a terrible idea for the UK, but an even bigger kind of surprise was that a lot of people who lived in the UK had experienced exactly the same sort of developments that that I described at the beginning of this long answer 
in quite different ways for me. All the things that I thought of as giving me opportunities, making life more interesting and better and expanding my horizons were seen as threatening them and making them less safe, shrinking their horizons, making them feel more vulnerable. And that cognitive dissonance and the extent to which it wasn't just true of the UK, but of many other countries, that led me on a, on a, on a kind of really deep voyage of, of discovery where I started looking again at a lot of the ideas that I had imbibed as a student, as a young professional, as a citizen over the last couple of decades and to question whether, you know, to what extent they were right and they were, they were wrong. And I'm still totally convinced that I've benefited enormously from, from connectivity and that knowledge, our ideas, our civilizations have all been advanced by it. But what has become much clearer is that, that it's a double-edged sword and that there is a, a dark side. And that, in fact, it is the process of linking people together, which is often creating these cleavages and conflict. And that is something which we were not taught at school. It was the opposite of what we, was meant to happen. Because the idea was that by building interdependence between people, you would end up eroding differences and uh, that would lead to, to a more harmonious world. And in fact, the conclusion I've come to is that, that it's actually often something which, which creates competition and, and creates enmity, as well as giving people a whole arsenal of, of, uh, of weapons with which to inflict pain on one another and to pursue a competitive agenda, which had, was maybe less obvious during the years after the end of the Cold War, but which had never really disappeared. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so that people are, are clear on this, this is not a, a screed against globalization. This is not a polemic against engagement or pro-decoupling or anything like that. This is just simply something that I hope is now obvious to a lot of people, which is that, yeah, it, it's not all upside, is that uh, globalization, connectivity, all the open borders, these things aren't unalloyed good. So uh, it, it's a fantastic book. Your book centers on this idea of three empires of connectivity, one of which, of course, is the one that we'll be focusing on, which is China. The other two, of course, are the United States and the European Union. Can you talk briefly about the three of these, the US, China, and the EU, and the different ways in which they seek to, to leverage connectivity to advance their own interests? So I think before we look at how they use it to advance their own interests, you need to look at how they think about it. And I think one of the, the most interesting features about our connected world is that we're totally bound up with one another we have these extraordinarily dense supply chains which link us together. We have the internet. We've got vast amounts of, of contact. And connectivities become totally intrinsic, not just to our economies, but to our, politi- our politics, to our sense of who we are, the way that we lead our lives. And yet, the way that people think about it is fundamentally different from country to country. And in the book, I, I sort of show some of the, the ways that connectivity creates these conflicts that I talked about. I also show some of the ways that countries have, have used to exploit the, the asymmetries in, in this very network world, because some countries are more connected than others, and they can use that as a tool. And we can talk more about that later. But I think if you look at this hyper-connected world, what you see is that there are three powers that are able to to influence the whole network rather than just manipulate little bits of it. And they are, as you say, the United States, China and the, the European Union. And they've got completely different ways of thinking about power and about connections, all of which are evolving in some ways going in a similar direction at the moment, in a Chinese direction, actually, I think you could even argue. Hmm. But, um, but their starting points are fundamentally different. And I think that the way that they look at the world is very, very different. The way that they think about the units of analysis is, is quite different. And the way that they think about 
power within that world is also uh, quite different. So I, I spend quite a lot of time looking at the deep philosophical roots for how these three empires sort of think about power. And I start with with Washington and I call it the gatekeeper power because it sees its role as, as sort of building and standing guard around these sort of extraordinary global networks which have been built around America over the last century. And traditionally, you've had lots of different tribes uh, in the American political, military, industrial complex who thought about connectivity in different ways. You have the sort of libertarian founders of the internet. You've got the entrepreneurs who run big monopolies in Silicon Valley. You've got the the watchful eyes of the of the intelligence community that Edward Snowden told us so much about that using these connections in other ways. You've got the the US Treasury where you have warriors in grey suits who try and use control of the dollar and the global financial system to advance American foreign policy objectives. You've got liberal internationalists in the State Department who want to have an open world with open societies and an open trade and open economies. And then you have the sort of securitrats in the Pentagon who who think about connectivity in more kind of aggressive terms and think about worry about cyber attacks and things like that. But by and large, and they, so they don't agree on lots of things, but they do kind of agree on some basic principles. Um, at the beginning, when America was the unipolar power, they basically thought that what you needed was a sort of single liberal international order, which would become a, a multiplier for American power. If you connect the whole world, America is so much more powerful culturally, economically, militarily. that This would allow American ideas to spread throughout the network and gradually transform everyone else in the world. And that is also something which was kind of attractive for the expansive vision of, of, of entrepreneurs, because if you're running Microsoft or Facebook or Google, the idea of being able to take over the world and benefit from these network effects was, was very attractive. But also, if you were you know, running the CIA, the idea that you could snoop on anybody anywhere else in the world was also quite attractive. So basically, that has led them to kind of push for a, a sort of open global system where the power of American dollars and American companies is relatively untrammeled. And they've been trying to to get rid of a lot of the borders and the barriers to building these sorts of global networks. But even while they were talking a big game about, about kind of liberal international order, what you've seen is that Washington has been sort of rather systematically using its position at the heart of these networks to use two key tools to advance their power. So one is is this idea of gatekeeping. If you can decide who's in and out of the networks, then you can actually have quite a lot of power to to punish countries that you want to punish. So after 9-11, for example, people in the Treasury worked out ways of using the global financial system to go after terrorist financing. But then that got expanded to kick Iran out of the global financial system because they didn't like the Iranian nuclear program to kick North Korea out. And now Russia's central bank is being sanctioned. The SWIFT network for the global financial uh, information is, is being used to punish other banks there. So using the dollar, its control of the dollar as a network allows it to kind of decide who's in and who's out of the club. And then the other kind of tool which they used a lot which comes from the other kind of extraordinarily powerful global network is is American control of of data, both the sort of physical infrastructure of underwater cables, which connects the whole of the world, but also the fact that so many American platforms have all of this data. So mining data and Snowden showed the extent to which that was being done against kind of friends and foe alike. So that's the old kind of idea, very expansive, being quite instrumental about what's going on. When you look at the global network, the thing that you're most interested in are these choke points where you have hubs in the system because not all connections in a global network are exactly the same. So what you're interested in is the the hubs which can decide who's in and who's out of the system and can allow you to spy on, on different players. Over time, I think the US has become much more nervous that its control of the system is is not complete anymore. And they're worried about other powers, particularly China, being able to influence America. So that's leading to a new debate, which is about decoupling and about somehow balkanizing the global economy and global data networks into like-minded 
players so that the US can maintain a kind of big international reach, but not open itself up as much to, to transformation by, by China or by other powers that are seen as, as kind of more threatening. So that's the US bit. All right, let's go to the EU now. So the EU, I call the rule making power. And basically, the European Union is itself nothing other than a kind of massive global network. It has 27 countries in it. They're bound together by a rule book of 80,000 pages of laws, which they all have to sign up to in order to get into the European Union. And the EU has not just been systematically removing barriers between its members, but has also been a big force for globalization on the world stage. That's right. Um, and one of the things that it's, it's done very powerfully is to try and use its rule book to, to shape how other people do business. So for not that many people have probably heard of, of Margrethe Vestager, the Danish commissioner in the, in the EU, but she's somebody who comes from a very small country, but she became quite famous when she fined Apple $13 billion for, for tax evasion. And she did that after finding Google. Yeah, Google was, that, that fine was enormous too. I mean, who went after Google for bundling the Chrome browser into Android. And, and my God, that was like, what, $9 billion or something? Yeah, yeah more than that. It was eight, eight, over 8 billion euros. It must have oh, about right, $10 right, billion. Right. I mean, it's kind of huge amounts of money. And she, one of the things that she she did was she pushed forward this idea of the General Directive on Privacy Regulation, which is a new kind of digital rule book on, on privacy. And basically, when the EU looks at uh, kind of global networks, so it's focused not so much on the hubs like the US, but more on the, the kind of individual nodes within it and what rules they follow. And the EU has tried in lots of different ways to work out what kind of world it wants to live in, how connections uh, between different players should work, and then to tell people if they want to play with Europe, they have to follow the European rules. And that is true of tax, it's true of data privacy, but increasingly it's true about other areas. So there's a big debate now about a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So if people don't basically... Uh, uh, have as uh, carbon and neutral footprint as, as European countries do, then they'll have to pay a tariff in order to import things into the EU. Right. So that's the sort of second big network. And then the third one is obviously China, which is, I think, in many ways, the, the most interesting one, because it's China has been both one of the huge beneficiaries, probably the biggest beneficiary of our open global economy over the last couple of yeah. uh, decades inarguably yeah it's bound into the world now more than any other country if you look at the number of countries who have a number whose number one trade partner uh, is china it, you know long ago it overtook the us and germany and other players and throughout the time that it's been binding itself into these global networks and building connections with everyone else it's been utterly terrified of the downside of, of connectivity. That's right. And the way that they've tried to get the benefits of out of a connected world whilst protecting themselves from what they saw of as the threats, I think is a, a really interesting exercise. It's almost like a Sisyphean task, which, the, which different Chinese leaders have been pursuing ever since Deng's Southern Tour. In fact, some people would say for the century before that as well, going back to all the debates around May the 4th, etc. But I think that what is also very interesting is that the Chinese, in many ways, have thought about connections uh, in quite a fundamental way for longer than any other civilization. So the term I use to describe Beijing is the relational power. Mm -hmm. um, and I took that term from a lot of the discussions which Chinese academics have been having in recent times when they try and think about what, a, what does a Chinese idea of international relations look like. And there's a really interesting book written by Ching Le Qing, who is the, the president of the Foreign Affairs University, where he tries to counterpose this sort of relational thinking that you have within China with the Western ideas of international relations. And he sort of argues that, um, that you know, if you go back 
through Confucian thought to Taoism to all sorts of other kind of influences on Chinese thinking, there's been a, a fascination with the idea of relations and that the Chinese tend not to look at the nodes and at the kind of individual links in the system, but to think about the relationships between them. And that's why this idea of relationism is seen as a, a very helpful way of, of trying to conceptualize the way that Chinese think not just about international relations, but also about domestic policy. And I, I spent a lot of time while I was working on this book talking to, to different academics. So Qin Yaqin's book, I think, is the most systematic attempt to come up with a, a, a sort of Chinese theory of international relations around relationism. But lots of other people have been on similar journeys and are going back and and uncovering some of the old concepts that come out of Confucianism, come out of Taoism, out of other intellectual currents, and to draw a direct intellectual lineage from them to the Belt and Road Initiative and to to a lot of the elements of contemporary Chinese foreign policy. And I think the core idea in it is that whereas the Western idea of the nation state is as a legal society, which is very much about individuals, China is much more of a, of a relationship society. I had a very interesting exchange with, with Zhang Yongnian, who's a, a political mm-hmm. scientist who's, who's based, who have you ever had him on the podcast? I no, I've so. not. I've not had him on yet. I'd, I'd love to, though. He would be great. But he taught, He basically says that the idea of the relationship society, you know, starts the family structure and it kind of radiates out from them. And he he had this wonderful way of of explaining Chinese politics in relational terms by looking at the architecture of the Beijing ring roads. Right, right. I remember that. <laughs> so you've got the Chinese Communist Party headquarters on the first ring. Then on the second ring, you have the National People's Congress. Uh, uh, so you have the government on the second ring, National People's Congress on the third ring, People's Consultative Committee on the fourth ring, and so on. And this very kind of hierarchical idea of, of different relationships going out with from that. And of the sort of centerpiece of thinking about these relationships being much more to do with with hierarchy, with respect, rather than about legal relations. And then they use a lot of those ideas to explain the way that China relates to other countries, which is much more centered around looking at the number of links you have with other players, the quality of those links, and to have relationships which are not determined by some sort of abstract legal idea, but much more to do with the kind of political closeness that, and the loyalty that you get from different players. That sort of Confucian system that was central to the tributary system in the Ming era, but you can see it carrying on in rather direct terms uh, into some of the ways that the Belt and Road Initiative is, is being developed, which a lot of people see as a sort of as a modern practical reinvention of the, of, of the old tributary system. Yeah, that's a, a point we could debate. But so, Mark, when you suggested that the other empires of connectivity seem to be sort of imitating China, is this what you're talking about? That they're more fo- focused on sort of these uh, networks of relationships? When you talked about, for example, uh, the Biden administration wanting to hold close, like-minded countries, is is that sort of what you were referring to? Because I, I sort of had something else in mind. But um, so I think that's one element of it. But I think the other elements of it are seeing it as a sort of double-edged sword. So, you know, the China, you know, since China basically has, has encountered modernity, it's tried to take advantage of Western technologies and of ideas without putting itself in a position where it could be transformed and changed or undermined by that contact. And that has led to a very ambivalent relationship with connectivity yeah. ambivalent relationship to the rest of the world and to contact with the rest of the world and that's now i think being replicated in in other players so if you look at uh, a lot of what the u.s has been doing in the technological realm in recent years it kind of looks like the mirror image of what china's been doing you know before you had a, a very kind of open idea where the u.s was happy to let chinese companies buy up American companies to invest in the US and to have sort of open networks. And now, um, you know, decoupling is the order of the day. They've embraced the Chinese idea of internet sovereignty now. Uh, that, that's really interesting. I mean, that's that's sort of where I was going with this, like you say, really since the first 
encounters, the brutal encounters with, with the West in, in the mid-19th century, there has been this ambivalence. And yeah, you made reference to like the self-strengthening movement, to this idea they could you know use Western technology but sort of hold it at bay without allowing it to infect the Chinese essence. And yeah, and uh, you know all the way up to the reform and opening and this idea of you know we we uh, are going to have flies and mosquitoes that'll come in right that we need a screen door of some kind. You know the internet was was great and you know three cheers for informatization. Uh, Except for its, you know, potential to destabilize society, right? You know, we don't want that part of it. So in recent, I guess the last 18 months or so, we've seen this spate of, of regulatory actions taken against Chinese internet companies, uh, technology companies, not just internet companies, uh, but mostly, you know, various sectors of the internet. While these have often been really kind of heavy-handed, I think a lot of folks would say excessively heavy-handed, there are others who would point out that they're trying to address exactly the same sorts of pathologies that we face in the U.S. and, and in Europe, too, you know, to, to tame these big tech companies that have built these, you know, almost unassailable monopolies based on the network effect and, and whatnot um, to prevent the abuse of personal data, to stop the spread of misinformation or disinformation. Most of it, yeah, I mean, sure, by my lights, it goes way too far. But couldn't you at least say that Beijing is maybe laudable for having at least mustered the political will to try to break this, you know, this this lock? For the uh, is this also part of what you were talking about in terms of Beijing's approach to this being imitated? Yeah. Well, one of the the kind of central ideas that I explore in the book is is this sort of relationship between the U.S. and China and how connectivity plays into that and into both sides sense of themselves but also into the relationship that they have with one another and when i first started looking at us china uh questions in in a lot of detail and i spent a lot of time in both china talking to chinese people about it but also i spent several years going around all of the different communities in in the us talking to to people who were thinking about the china relationship there was a, a a sense that a lot of the the tensions between China and the U.S. came from the fact that they were such different countries that stood for sort of fundamentally different ideas. The world's biggest democracy, well, the most powerful democracy, dictatorship, communist, capitalist, um, East, West, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Was it? But what I sort of found through that process of research was that, in a kind of strange way, China and America got on much better when they were really different from each other when china was a a communist country when it was a developing country (laughs) there was a very sort of symbiotic relationship when dung was running the show and you had chinese manufacturing u.s consumption uh, chinese savings u.s borrowing high-tech ideas being developed in the US, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You had this kind of quite symbiotic relationship, which, you know, was so symbiotic that people even talked about Chimerica as this kind of single economy which had developed right. around it. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of the tensions that have come in have come from the fact that actually China and America have become much more similar to each other and are therefore often mirroring each other and competing with each other. And what you're describing in the tech world is is quite interesting because in in some ways uh, I'm not trying to draw any moral equivalence between everything that the Chinese government's doing and the Chinese system and the US system but what is interesting is on the one hand you are getting much more competition about controlling the sort of heights of of technology in different areas whether it's ai or i mean a lot of the sort of cutting edge areas which are which are central to made in china 2025 and which are kind of central to to american thinking about its economic future that these are areas where there is a sort of duel going on between between uh china and america between these big companies um uh and platforms on on both sides but also the government and the way that they're thinking about governing the technological space, they're both going through big changes and they are kind of mirroring each other more and more. So there, there is sort of worries about, you know, using regulation, using export controls, using controls on data, 
a lot of which started in China because of the ambivalence that you were describing earlier. And that ambivalence got a lot more pronounced after the Arab uprisings when yeah, the Chinese yeah, were very scared about the about the effect of the internet domestically. And I remember when I, when I first met you, actually, and you were working in the Chinese tech sector, and we were talking about some of the ways that the that big Chinese platforms had to um, ha- had to reconcile, you know, the the needs of consumers with um, worries about content. And I mean, it actually, it was quite interesting. A lot of the debates which Facebook and which Google are now having about, um, and and some of the mechanisms they're using are kind of um, uh, uh, not that different from from what China's doing. There's a lot of, you know, there are armies of censors being <laughs> recruited by Facebook by Google and by other players to look at the content on the internet to remove things which are seen as dangerous or exploitative, etc. And and um, so I think there has been a sort of convergence on that level. And then, as you say, so you had you know on the one hand these kind of debates about surveillance capitalism in the US and and the surveillance state in China they feel quite different, but there are more and more similarities uh, in the way that politics and big data and these enormous platforms uh, running up against each other. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. as more and more of our lives go online and are, are run by these by platforms which are privately owned, there are more and more questions about responsibility, about the role of the state and about ethics. And that, that's before you get to these geopolitical worries, which are, are obviously a very important part of it as well. And you I think that the the rule book is being rewritten on both sides. You're getting a lot of decoupling, but you're also getting a much greater entangling of of national security, national interests, national political priorities with uh, the way that these big companies are are operating. And it's quite confusing. I think there's been a sort of process of convergence going on, even as people are becoming more and more strident about the open internet on the one hand and the sort of surveillance state and digital dictatorship on the other. Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting this point that you raise. I mean, I'd said in my little intro about how familiarity seems to breed contempt as the old you know saying goes, but similarity also seems to breed contempt. <laughs> uh, that's uh, It's interesting that the more alike they are, the less they seem to be able to get along. And I, I, I think that's a great insight. Um, and also, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I, I, I confirmed that that was, I suppose, a, an anonymous cameo. I had, I'm quoted in there anonymously, but uh, uh, you just confirmed for me. That I, I suspected that was probably me in there <laughs> back when you uh, were writing that book. Um, let's take a little detour from China and come back to China. But I, I want to talk to you, I mean, because obviously you published your book at the end of 2021, um, a few months before Vladimir Putin sent his armies and, uh, and, and so into Ukraine on February 24th. Uh, that's been a, a topic that I've, I've talked about an awful lot. But I wanted to see how you treated that. Uh, you, you, I understand with the new paperback coming out this summer, you had the opportunity to write a new preface for the book, uh, and you were kind enough to share that with me, and I thought it was really great to, that you were able to do that. Um, so maybe maybe we can we can talk a little bit about how the war in Ukraine uh, fits into the book. Was this conflict also sort of a story of connectivity gone wrong? I mean, was it also a manifestation of the dark side of connectivity? Yeah, I, I think it really um, was actually. I spent a mm. lot of time in Ukraine over the last couple of decades and have watched how Ukraine has found itself the crossroads between its past in the Soviet Union and the kind of close links that it's had with with Russia and its European aspirations, which were shared by a large number of people within the country and have driven an increasing attempt to connect Ukraine to to the European Union, you know, in, in trading relationships through energy and, and other kinds of links. And I think that what is fascinating about the place that we're at at the moment is that some of the roots of the war that we're going through lie in a connectivity struggle or a connectivity conflict that that went wrong because i first went to ukraine just after the the orange revolution which was a moment where uh, the country had had a very divisive election there was a, a kind of russian leaning candidate viktor yanukovych 
who was running against a coalition of parties that were more Western leaning and wanted to to join the West. And when the election was disputed and many people felt that Yanukovych had stolen the election, they took to the streets and that display of people power became known as the Orange Revolution and led to Viktor Yushchenko uh, becoming president of Ukraine and trying to bring the country closer to Europe. It was a very complicated process and it was kind of non-linear and Yanukovych ended up coming back to power. But then you had sort of round two in 2013 when the Russians were so worried about Ukraine being drawn into the European sphere of influence that they created a whole new economic union called the Eurasian Economic Union that was modelled on the European Union and got Russian graduates of the College of Europe at Bruges, who, which is the place which which creates the European technocrats who design the, the bureaucracy in Brussels, to come up with a rival system that looked exactly the same. And there was this big choice which, you, which Ukraine faced about signing an association agreement with the European Union or joining the Eurasian Economic Union. And Yanukovych, ummed and ahed about it, in the end decided to, to go with the Russians. And Thousands of Ukrainians took to the streets again in the, the so-called Euromaidan protests. And he then decided to shoot at them initially, but then realized that it wasn't going to work and ran away, went into exile in Russia. And Putin was so scared of losing Ukraine totally in that moment of political chaos that he annexed Crimea and started the war in, in the Donbass, which right. has been going on for the, for the last eight years. For Europeans, the thought was that by creating uh, a set of political relationships through its association agreements, it would be spreading harmony. Because in fact, what what they were doing was creating a lot of fear and anxiety in, in Russia. And the clash between these two integration projects ended up starting uh, a literal war. I mean, I'm not trying to, to let Putin off the hook because there was nothing inevitable about it. It was a choice. Uh, oh, absolutely to, to yeah. do this but yeah. it it shows how connectivity can go wrong and then even more interesting um my kind of core argument in the book is essentially that we don't live in an age where you can have blocks that are, are sort of sealed off from each other we're all in each other's faces we have lots of different contact and because countries are terrified of of nuclear war they're often trying to find different ways of fighting with each other. And the the kind of main way that they do it nowadays is through manipulating and even weaponizing the ties that bind us together. And, I, you know, it's definitely true that war hasn't disappeared. There are thousands of people who've been killed since the 24th of, of February on both Russian and Ukrainian sides in ways that look very familiar to, to people who've, who've been through the Second World War or, or other kinds of historical conflicts. But at the same time, that's just one of the many battlegrounds which is being used. And alongside the fighting war, you have Russia manipulating its energy supplies and using that as a as a weapon against the West. You have and using the internet as well. We we've talked about now these three empires of connectivity, and we've talked a little bit about you know uh, the Ukraine conflict. Vladimir Putin's Russia has not, as you said, he has not shied away at all from using connectivity as a disruptive force. You know, as you say, our dependence on Russian hydrocarbons, especially European dependence on on Russian gas and oil, uh, and then as I was just saying, you know, his use of the internet to 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 sow disinformation and to disrupt. Um, one of the things that I've always found the most frightening about the Kremlin style of of information warfare is that he seeks to to decenter truth entirely, right? Uh, to spread kind of an epistemological skepticism, a nihilism. And, and this idea that there, you know, there is not, there cannot, there's never, it has been sort of a shared truth. You know, we've seen how he's manipulated historical truth when with Ukraine and things like that. If you don't know all about that, read Tim Snyder. Um, one could perhaps argue, though, as I think Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes sort of do in, in their great book, which I, I, I loved called The Light That Failed, um, that when it comes to Russia, we were maybe too cavalier in the way that we pursued integration with them in the post-Soviet world. I mean, it was all be like us, right? There was this injunction to, to imitate us. And it provoked 
crust of them are you, you know, a lot of resentment. I mean, as I read your book, I kept thinking, was connectivity the problem with Russia or was it the particular way that the developed world, Europe and the United States, insisted on connecting on our terms, not respecting difference, not taking sufficient account of historical or, or cultural inertia and all that. I mean, it was just too much of this sort of end of history thinking and too much, you know, um, hey, be like us. And I, I almost feel like we're in danger of doing the same thing when it comes to China. So it's that we've maybe failed to connect Russia enough so that it has these sort of shallow connections that it can weaponize easily and doesn't have the more deep institutional and uh, deeper economic connections. It's, you know, a, a kind of a, a one-trick pony of an economy. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the way, I mean, you know, part of the foundations of of Putinism and of where we're at at the moment is a deep resentment at the way that, you know, the lack of respect that we showed to other countries earlier on in their kind of sense and 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 this idea of the end of history and the kind of one-way flow and that people are going to become like us. And, and that, that led to a lot of kind of happy thinking, I think, on our side. And, you know, there are big parallels with the way that people think about China as well where for the last couple of decades. But again, this isn't about letting him off the hook, though. I just want to make sure that people, this doesn't say, okay, so that's okay. Go ahead and invest. No, of course not. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that um, the West has ended up actually creating a lot of blowback to itself because of the, the end of history thinking where we thought that other people just wanted to become like us and we weren't really very interested or curious about the rest of the world. And we assumed that there was only one way of, of developing and it was it was our way or the, the highway. And that's definitely kind of a lot of parallels between the mistakes we made towards Russia and some of the the magical thinking about China's development over the last couple of decades, which have led to to bad policy. But I'm not sure that totally explains the the problems that that we're having with Russia at the moment. Mm. I think that might both explain, on the one hand, some of the the resentment which the Russians have towards Europeans. Um, but and it also explains the fact that we've ended up putting ourselves in a position where we were easily blackmailed because um, rather than seeing connectivity as a relationship of power where it mattered who was more dependent on whom, um, we saw interdependence as something which would create harmony. And a lot of European countries have ended up accidentally putting themselves in a position where they are so dependent on uh, Russian gas and hydrocarbons that they can be bullied by the by the Russians. And that is, I think, a lesson which many people are learning in other areas as well. And it's definitely something which came to light during COVID when it came to the, the relationship that many countries had with, with China because of the shock of wolf warrior diplomacy and the fear that people had of being overly dependent on on China for for PPE for medical components and real reconsideration of of how supply chains should be organized in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's bring this back to China now that you you've done so with uh, talking about the, the the COVID outbreak and stuff. But way back in in two thousand eight when you published. What Does China Think? I, I love that book. I, I, I thought it, you had made a real effort to expose readers to a different set of voices from Chinese intellectuals than the ones that they'd been you know, used to hearing. Uh, it's, it's been kind of a pet peeve of mine. And, and I, I talked about it years and years ago on this show. Uh, I, I felt like pretty much, I mean, this is, this is still pretty much the case. I, I, I don't think it's changed that much. Books like yours notwithstanding, in, in media or in books for lay people, uh, what we're always exposed to are these Chinese dissidents or, or critical intellectuals rather than just sort of more establishment intellectuals. I mean, yeah, they have a whole lot more sexy or inspiring uh, views, ones that are a lot more flattering to our own worldview, right? But uh, when establishment views are, are presented at all, they just come in the form of these really kind of turgid and uh, comically dogmatic party ideologues, and we usually don't hear from, 
you know, kind of the more mainstream ones. Uh, unless you're reading like Tim Cheek's academic work, which is really great and I highly recommend, or, or reading the great website uh, by David Ernby, reading the Chinese Dream, which is something I, I think all a lot of our listeners are already doing. Uh, you're not likely to know much about what these establishment intellectuals really think. I mean, this generates a kind of disconnect that leaves people puzzled as to why any reasonable person might support the party. And, you know, why aren't they just like storming the barricades and, and rising up? You know, it's that, why don't you hate your government as much as I think you should, kind of thinking. Uh, Jude Blanchett, though, he said it really well. when He, he said that we needed to hear from the David Brooks of China <laughs> Sorry, David, if you're listening, but no, no, really, the, sort of a, a almost bland mainstream establishment intellectual um, who kind of represents the the, the, the kind of quotidian views. Uh, but I, anyway, I thought your book was a really good corrective to that. It strikes me though that the Chinese voices that you emphasize this time are decidedly more hawkish. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that those more hawkish voices are you know more in the ascent than they were back in in 2008 when you when you published What Does China Think. So I, I don't think you're wrong to do that. I mean, they probably do capture the zeitgeist a little better. But do you worry that you'll leave readers with maybe too strong of an impression of China having now embraced this kind of confrontational posture? I, I don't feel like that's entirely settled yet. I think the one of the big stories of the last 15 years since I published What Does China Think has been one where a lot of the tendencies which – I started to uh, to show in that book have been strengthened and accentuated. And at that time already, I mean, my book was partly challenging the idea that many people in the West had that China was becoming more like us and that, that, um, chi- that Western ideas were going to structure how the Chinese economy developed, how Chinese politics developed, how... Uh, the role that China played on the world stage at that time, there was still a lot of hope that China would become a quote unquote responsible international stakeholder. Um, and I was sort of arguing that the big story uh, of that time was one of intellectual emancipation and that, mm. a tr- you know, China was trying to develop its own models. It was happily taking lessons from all over the world, taking all sorts of things it thought worked from different places. But the goal was not to imitate us. It was to right. to come up with something with Chinese characteristics, which melded Western thinking with thinking from the socialist period with ancient Chinese wisdom and to, to develop something new. And already then, you know, you had in the economy a move towards thinking about a much bigger role for the state and a, a sense that the sort of laissez-faire neoliberal policies which Jiang Zemin and others had been pushing had created a huge amount of inequality in China and had a lot of negative side effects. Right. There was a, a kind of new debate about politics and really interesting questions about what role the internet and deliberation could play in strengthening the, the party state and the role of the party rather than weakening it. And in foreign policy, you know, at that time, there was already a lot of talk about building China's comprehensive national power and thinking about different ways of recasting its relationships with its neighbours and with other countries. And I think what's happened is that those tendencies have all been strengthened and Xi Jinping has launched a completely different official discourse about how where China's going and, and how China is going not completely different in that a lot of the roots were there before he came to power. But I think he's pushed the country firmly down that direction. I think a lot of intellectual life and the debates that I was describing in that book and and in a subsequent book I did a few years later called China 3.0, a lot of those debates are are not as possible anymore because uh, the public sphere is much more controlled than it was yeah, um, no, no question. Of, back in earlier times. No but, question about that. But, it, you know, it's obviously true that it's it's a vast country. One in five people in the world <laughs> is Chinese. And there's an enormous diversity of views. And you can find, I'm sure, Chinese people who hold every view under the, under the sun. But in the book, I suppose what I'm trying to do is to show how this idea of competition with the US and 
of taking control of, of China's affairs and rethinking what the global economy looks like is not just something which is in, in Xi Jinping's head, but has become an important part of structuring a lot of the different developments, whether they're technological developments, economic developments, and, and in other places. And I sort of try and show some of the thinking behind it in dispassionate terms. So I'm not sort of passing judgment on any of them, but I, it's definitely true that the the voices which seem to be the loudest, which seem to be most in tune with public policy at the moment, are ones which are... More hawkish, yeah. yeah. They're, they're more hawkish, but they're also kind of leading towards a different kind of world order. And I think that's one of the really interesting things that's going on at the moment. And I kind of look at some of the parallels between the new Chinese debates about dual circulation and rethinking the idea of the global economy and the Chinese economy and some of the parallels between that and the American debates about building back better and decoupling and the European debates about European sovereignty. And we are all kind of going in a similar direction away from the the, the kind of dream of, of one world and of, of integration towards um, a much more ambivalent attitude towards connectivity, much more thinking about it as a zero-sum sphere, much more thinking about geopolitics and power than we were beforehand. And the parallels and the differences between the way that Europeans, Americans, and Chinese are doing that, I think are, are very interesting. Well, these are all ideas that you explore really, really well in this book, which I highly recommend that people uh, read. I'm, I'm not going to let you completely off the hook. Uh, I, there's a whole bunch of questions that I wanted to ask you about things like Richard Nisbet and uh, and the, the role of, of culture in our thinking about China. But uh, we'll talk to you a, a, another time about that because I do have a show planned where we will explore that whole topic of, you know, the weight of history and tradition, of cultural psychology, of historical reflexes, and, and all the, the mental furnishings that can be, you know, tied to, to things like social structures, and parenting even. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll do all that at, at some point. But for, for the time being, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. A pleasure, as always, to speak to you. But before I let you go, though, let's, let's get to recommendations and before we do that, let me quickly remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, like the wonderful China in Africa podcast, China Stories, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, uh, you can learn Chinese, which I just love, uh, Strangers in China, the China Sports Insider, China Corner Office, all of our shows. The best thing that you can do is help us out uh, by subscribing to the China Access newsletter. You know the drill. Go to subchina.com slash subscribe if you are interested in access and uh, some of our other premium products. And if you want to just see the complete list of newsletters, just go to subchina.com slash newsletters. And you can see some of our really great free ones like the Vibe newsletter that my colleague Jiayin puts together every week. It's uh, just a fantastic read. All right, let's go to recommendations. What's a good book or movie or TV show you've watched recently that, that you've, you could recommend to our listeners, Mark? So there have been lots of really great things which I've been reading recently, looking at Ukraine and thinking about Chinese foreign policy and how that's developing. And mm -hmm. I, I, there's a great article by, by Yen Shetong in, in Foreign Affairs at the moment, looking at some of the dilemmas, which I think is very interesting. But Yeah, I read that. That's good. There's one book which I found really helpful in terms of my understanding of Chinese grand strategy. And it's by a, a friend of mine who's a young academic who is the executive dean of the Institute of Public Policy in Guangzhou in China. And he's called Zhang Feng. And his book is called uh, Chinese Hegemony grand strategy and international institutions in East Asian history. And what Fung does in the book is he looks at some of the, the deep historical roots of Chinese foreign policy thinking now and fleshes out some of these ideas of China as a, as a relational power, which we were talking about earlier. But he does it in a, in a really interesting way. He's not sort of culturally essentializing the country. He's somebody who has studied international relations over a long period of time has got a very subtle sense of, of how the world works and i think it's a it's a really great piece of scholarship which casts a lot of interesting uh, light on the belt and road initiative on on the way that the chinese are thinking about some of the big uh, dilemmas they're facing at the moment and um you know if you really want to understand what lies behind 
the particular tactical decisions which are made on Ukraine and on other issues, um, you can do a lot worse than spend time with Bung's explanations about Chinese thinking on IR. So I recommend that very warmly. Thanks, Mark. That sounds terrific. Um, I'll see if I can get my hands on a copy of that. Uh, it sounds like something I really need to read. So I've got two recommendations uh, this week. One is the latest New Yorker piece by Pete Hessler, uh, which details how he you know, ran into certain difficulties with nationalist types while teaching at Sichuan University and how eventually his teaching contract was not renewed and he ended up having to leave China uh, a little prematurely. Pete uh, told some of this story when Jeremy and I spoke to him in November at our next China conference in, in New York. And if you haven't heard that, you should definitely check out that podcast. It was really fun. Uh, this contains, though, this, this piece in The New Yorker, a whole ton of detail. Uh, that is, of course, you know, it's delivered in, in, in Pete's impeccably clean and stripped-down prose with all the, you know, the humanity and the empathy uh, and, and the wonderful nuance that you've all come to expect from, from Peter Hessler's work. Uh, this one certainly does not disappoint on, on that count. Uh, the other recommendation that I have is for a, a show on Apple TV called Tehran, which is a spy thriller, which is set you know, in that eponymous city, uh, about an Iranian-born Israeli Mossad agent named Tamar, who happens to be a, a masterful hacker. Uh, so she gets... Uh, into Tehran uh, in, in a pretty clever way, intending to, you know, cripple power, I guess, to some missile defense systems or something like that so that the Israeli defense forces can can strike uh, a, a nuclear facility in Iran. But things go wrong, and she ends up sort of having to, to make her way on her own uh, in in a hostile environment. And so it's it's really good. Uh, this is like the third Israeli series of this sort that I have watched. Uh, I'm not. I'm only a few episodes into it, but it's really good. And it reminds me of some of the other ones, like Fauda, especially, uh, which yeah. was on Netflix. Yeah, Fauda was great. Yeah. So you'll dig this one too if you liked Fauda. Tehran was fantastic as well. Oh, you, yeah, you've no, seen I it. Both. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it. it I, I feel like Americans could learn an awful lot from from these screenwriters and from the direction. I mean. Just they, 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 one of the things they do so well, and I like this in Fauda too, is they create these antagonists that have like a compelling reason to do what they're doing. I mean, they're not just sort of driven by evil. They're, they're, they, their motives make sense, and there's sort of an internal logic. Like the so-called bad guys, you know, the Palestinians uh, in in Fauda, and you know this this guy who's like an intelligence chief for the Iranian National Revolutionary Guard. He's kind of an interesting guy. I mean, he tells jokes. He loves his wife. He's he's a cool kind of a cool character. So I'm digging that. I, I feel like very, it, it, very, very cool. There's another series actually where you're, if you're on that genre, which which you may uh, have watched as well, but called the the in English it's called the Bureau, the Bureau des Légendes, which is a amazing French spy series, also set in the in the Middle East. But it's, oh, uh, oh, well, I'll definitely check that out. I will. I will. I will want to see that. Thank you. The bureau. Can't remember which streaming service it's on, but uh, I'll definitely look at that because I, I I can't get enough of this type of show. I think it's on Amazon. Right? Okay. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, that was really fun, and uh, I really look forward to, to seeing you next week. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Mark, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Isaac Wall. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help you discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at Subchina News, and you should check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.